Welcome to the Think Law Podcast with Colin Seal, where we challenge you to imagine a world where critical thinking is no longer a luxury good and equip you with the powerful but practical tools to make that possible in our schools, in leadership, and in our homes. This is Colin Seal, and I am excited that you're joining me on another episode of the Think Law Podcast. Today, I want to talk to you all about something that I feel very strongly about, and that is the idea that without question, some of you are just doing it wrong. You are doing it wrong. And I will be very specific about who the some of you are that are doing it wrong and what exactly that it is that is just simply not right. There are people today that are walking around the world using an iPhone, and I simply just don't get it. Why would anybody ever own an iPhone in a time when a much superior device known as the Android is available? Now, before I get some of you to unfollow me on Twitter and decide that you're no longer going to listen to or subscribe to this podcast, I want to actually step back for a second and talk about how it is that As we have with so many issues in this world, it's almost that we've become tribal when it comes to this idea of what phone brand we prefer. When we start digging deeper about this idea that even when you look at little children in the playground arguing about what their favorite color is, all the way to the adults who are essentially still children in the playground, arguing about various different beliefs, opinions, ideas. We are struggling as a community, as a society, as a species, in figuring out a simple question. How can we disagree without being disagreeable? How can we disagree without being disagreeable? So I want to step back and I want to be really clear about why this is even an issue on the Think Law podcast, why we're diving into this when it comes down to a metric of understanding this idea of creating a world where critical thinking is no longer a luxury good. If we really want to be honest about why any of this stuff matters, about why we really care about education, about why like good leadership is so powerful and impactful, about why supportive parenting and creating warm learning spaces in your own home makes such a difference, we've got to step back and realize these are not going to always be smooth processes. It goes without saying that conflict is always going to be a part of any free society. If we're free to think what we want, if we're free to have our own beliefs, there will always come to a point where the need to disagree will be an actual concern. It's going to be something that comes up. What I really want to spend time talking about today is how can we get beyond the point where our disagreements cause us to do nothing but hone in on those disagreements. There's no way for us to really walk that line between 
disagreeing respectfully, and really getting to the point where we're obnoxious, we're trolling one another. You have to own your opponent. You have to own the person whose idea is different than yours. You can't just find a way to disagree without being disagreeable. Well, we know that this matters. We know that when you have leaders that can build consensus, the level of credibility is enhanced. We know that when there's a leader who can make sure people can feel heard, the people's input is actually articulated and becomes part of a solution. We're creating an end product where the people that are there in a group have created something that is bigger than the sum of the individual parts. There's power in learning how to disagree without being disagreeable. Communication is actually the number one core value of the work we lead with ThinkLaw. Because we understand that in the world that we're trying to get our kids ready for, in the world that you as a leader in your organization are currently solving problems for, The challenge we're talking about isn't necessarily the challenge around technical expertise. The challenge is, how do I speak to be understood? How do I listen to understand? And how does all that play into this world where I can learn how to disagree without being disagreeable? So I want to really get into the nitty gritty because it's one thing to talk about this in a far removed context when we're not in the middle of the drama. So I want to give you three practical tools that you can use to walk away with to ensure that when you're in that line of fire, to ensure that when we're talking about our kids and how to handle handle conflicts effectively, when we're sitting at our board meetings or we're working with a colleague and we're having challenges there as a profession, this is how we get there. Number one, We want to make sure that we encourage evidence. We ask for evidence. Respectfully ask for evidence. Now, I want to be really clear. When I say disagree without being disagreeable, I am not talking about disagreeing around facts. That doesn't actually make any sense, right? Like a fact is a fact. A fact is a fact. I'm not going to go back and forth with you about facts. Now, people might take in different interpretations based off of those facts, and I'm happy to go down that road with you. But when I talk about demanding evidence, I'm talking about asking for that evidence when it comes down to interpretations, to opinions, to ideas, really understanding and asking for that evidence. Great example. If you take a look at the idea around whether it makes any sense to make up a bed in the morning. Now, I have to say I come at this from a very biased perspective. I I physically, like emotionally, like, like rationally, there are zero parts of me that understand beyond the idea that this is something that I'm supposed to do. Like, why am I making up a bed that I'm about to just go right back in and sleep in and mess up? I I, I don't get it. It doesn't make any sense to me. But if I were to ask you, who I vehemently disagree with, whether you be my mother growing up, whether you be 
my wife, whether you be anyone that is pro-tuck in your beds, if I were to ask you, based on what? Why? Why in the world are you asking me to do this thing? What is your evidence that this is actually something that makes the nighttime routine any easier? It actually was helpful for me to understand that, logically speaking, making up your bed every night, as opposed to not making up your bed every night, creates predictability. The sheets are all where they're supposed to be. The pillows are all where they're supposed to be. Whereas, if you don't make up your bed... Maybe for one day you can get away with it and it looks all right, but you keep on sleeping in it. Next thing you know, this sheet is out of line. Then this sheet gets tucked out and then you let some time pass by. Next thing you know, you're sleeping on the mattress. And I'm like, oh, you know what? I think during my bachelor days, they might have been one or two times or 100 or 200 times where my failure to make up the bed resulted in me sleeping on a mattress. Therefore, I'm with it. But sticking to that evidence, getting ideas to be like a habit around asking for evidence helps you to see the other side, helps you to kind of piece together the logical argument that someone else is making, helps you understand their thinking process of how they got to this point. I want to go a little bit deeper. The second tip for disagreeing without being disagreeable comes down to an idea of asking a question that goes beyond the current dispute, the current issue, the current challenge. And that question is, what would the world look like if? So when I think about the question, what would the world look like if? I'll go back to a, a case I learned about in law school, one of the cases we use in one of our original Think Law volumes about this dispute that uh, these two men had over this fox. Because what happened was there was a, a hunter that was chasing after this fox and the, the, the fox, like, he had it in its view, but the fox got away. And there was another guy who was a teacher who just happened to be walking home from school one day. He sees the fox. He happens to be strapped that day. So he takes out his gun, shoots the fox. And Hunter says, dude, that was my fox. And the teacher's like, what are you talking about? Like, the fox just ran in front of me. I, I, I killed the fox. And there's this idea of like figuring out how and when do we decide that something becomes personal property of someone else? And you can make arguments back and forth about like, you know, who, who saw it first or whatever happened, right? Like each side would have their own evidence for, for why they should probably get access to that fox or have true claims of ownership over that fox. But one of the things that the judge did was step back and ask the question, what would the world look like if? And he started realizing like, okay, what would the world look like if means it's beyond this dispute? What would the world look like if means I need to think about the big picture implications of what might happen in the future? What would it mean if this was the rule that our society would have to go by? And when it came down to this question of what would the world look like if, whether we're disputing a policy change, whether we're trying to think about pushing our students to think beyond a current conflict resolution that they're having, to think beyond a historical moment and think about what that historical moment puts into place. What would the world look like if, in the case of this fox, 
and this dispute between the teacher and the hunter was, what would the world look like if all you had to do to have ownership over an animal in the wild is to have the intent of catching it? That would essentially mean that every single unsuccessful hunter can say, because I tried, that was mine. And you probably don't want to have a lot of people with weapons getting into arguments in the middle of the woods about who owns a deer, who owns a fox. It might get ugly fairly quickly. So if I want to think about a world where like the, 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 the rules are administered with more predictability, maybe a rule around having to do something affirmative to, to, to slow down this animal. Like, so maybe if I wounded the animal, maybe if I trapped it in the cage, maybe if I had it in the corner at a point where it wouldn't get away, but I've got to do something, got to do something in order to say that I have ownership that goes beyond just looking at it and trying to get it. So what would the world look like if becomes a very helpful way to pivot a disagreement into a bigger picture conversation about the public policy consequences, where sometimes you might even surprise yourself by changing your mind once you get outside of the minutia of that back and forth. Last but not least, again, as I've said before in this podcast, a lot of times when we think about critical thinking, we don't think about feelings. But let's be real. Feelings are part of the process. And for some moments, when disputes are starting to get straight up fiery, I'm talking about intensity, loud volume. I mean, you, you, you know when it's gone there and it is already there. One of the most important questions for the third and final tip for disagreeing without being disagreeable is asking the question. Why do you feel so strongly about this issue? Why do you feel so strongly about this issue? Now, the thing about this question is you don't even always have to ask it. Sometimes you might know this person. You might be a teacher and you might know this student. You might be uh, someone's boss or have a coworker and you know this person on your team. And if you stop for a second, put yourself in their shoes, empathize with the situation and understand like, oh, you know what? I think I got it. I think it makes sense to me why this is reacting this way. It can move us closer to a point where disagreeing without being disagreeable isn't so rare. I'll give you a, an actual concrete example. There was once a time where I was in a classroom that I was sharing with another teacher and I realized that it was a science class and I taught math, but he was doing labs before I got in. So the tables were all turned around in a weird way. So the kids in the very front row, they were fine because I can still see them even though their backs were to me. But the kids in the middle, I couldn't see the ones with their backs face to me. Some of these were kids who struggled academically. So I went ahead and I asked these two boys to move their seats so I can see them and they could have their eyes on me. At that point, there was a student in the class. Let's call him Juan. It wasn't his name, but let's just call him Juan. Juan is like, Mr. Seal, wait, 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 wait. That's messed up. How come you're asking the people in the front 
to stay put, but you're asking my friends over here to move. That's not fair. Why are you picking on them? And I'm like, hey, like that, that's not even what's going on. I need to see their work. And before I even get a chance to finish my sentence, he's going off. He's like, no, you're picking on them. That's not fair. Like, this is not even right. Like, I, 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 I can't stand when teachers do stuff like this. And I am like, <sighs> I don't know what's going on. I don't understand what is happening in this moment. I know for a fact that the 21-year-old version of my teacher self would have lost it. Right? I, I would have gotten into the battle. I would have had to prove my point. I am right. You are wrong. That's not what I did. I took Juan and I asked him to step outside with me for a second. I went outside and I started talking to him and I realized at that moment as he was looking up in the sky and shaking his head and rolling his eyes that we probably weren't going to make a lot of progress at this moment. And, and I tried to reassure him. I'm like, look, like you are a kid who gets it so quickly Um but a lot of your friends, like, it, it's not the same. Like, and you know this. You know that, like, we need to work together. I need to work more closely. I need to make sure we have that eye contact and we get that feedback. Still, like, he was so upset. So I asked the question, why do you feel so strongly about this? But I didn't ask him. I thought about it because I knew him. I knew his father was a contractor. And in the neighborhood in East Las Vegas where I taught, he was one of the few documented contractors who worked in construction in that neighborhood. I know that his father, as a result of being one of the few documented contractors, had to spend a lot of time advocating for his colleagues who were getting exploited, who were getting taken advantage of. So this idea that he has a special sort of spider sense when it comes to fairness and justice issues... That's not surprising at all. In fact, I came into school the next day and right at the start of class, I had to thank him in front of the entire class because he reminded me that there's never really a convenient time to talk about injustice. And what he, being that courageous actually stands out. And guess what? I still think Juan was wrong. I still think it wasn't the right decision for him to make. But we were able to disagree without being disagreeable because I understood what motivated him. Are we asking that question? Do we ever actually step back and wonder, like, why is it that this person has such strong views either way when it comes to any of the issues of today? Be it abortion, immigration, ideas around politics. Why do you support this party over that party? Why do you support this person over that person? Why do you think this type of business should get this sort of treatment and this kind of business should get that sort of treatment? Why do you feel so passionately about this student group versus this other student group? Why do you fight so hard for gifted and talented children? Why do you fight so hard for English language learners? But understanding why we feel so strongly is a key point in being able to disagree without being disagreeable. So to recap, we know that there's this idea around demanding evidence, asking for evidence as the first step to disagreeing without being disagreeable. We also know that asking this question of what would the world look like if, the second part, what would the world look like if, thinking beyond what's right in front of you, can get us both 
imagining beyond this conflict and thinking about the precedent-setting nature of what we are doing. And last but not least, the third step, which is asking this question of, why do you feel so strongly? Because if I can understand, if I can understand your why, it gets me to be much more comfortable with an idea that not only can I disagree without being disagreeable with you, but I can just agree to disagree and we can just move on. And as we wrap up, I just want to make one point. I believe strongly that we can disagree without being disagreeable. Do you agree? I hope you do. And if you don't, please don't be a jerk about it. Thank you for listening to the Think Law Podcast. Please subscribe to the podcast by clicking on the subscribe option on whatever platform you're listening to. Thank you for helping us create a world where critical thinking is no longer a luxury good. Thank you for checking out the Think Law Podcast. But did you know you can dig even deeper? My first book, Thinking Like a Lawyer, a framework to teach critical thinking to all students, is now available on Amazon or many of your favorite book websites. So please check it out and be a part of our critical thinking revolution. To get the latest and greatest updates about our work, please join our mailing list by texting THINKLAW to 66866. Thank you so much for listening to the Think Law Podcast.